our Old Testament lesson, Exodus chapter 12, verses 43 to 51, which is the end of the chapter. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. But no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, please turn with me now to our New Testament lesson and sermon text, Matthew 26, verses 47 through 56. Our New Testament lesson and sermon text, the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 26, verses 47 through 56. While he, as Jesus, was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled, that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When you and I think about a kiss, our minds immediately rush to thinking about something that must be romantic. But that is because our American culture confines the kiss entirely to the sphere of romance. Sure, the Bible does allow for kisses to be within the sphere of romance. For example, we read in Song of Solomon, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. 
But that is not at all the only way that a kiss can be used in the biblical text, in the ancient world, and in other cultures around the world in our day. Instead of beginning and ending with romance, as we are prone to do, the kiss can be thought of as an act of allegiance. At times, this can be a romantic sort of allegiance, like that between a husband and a wife. But it can also be a non-romantic sort of allegiance. For example, in Psalm 2, the nations are commanded by God to kiss the Son. Kiss the Messianic King, the Son. Clearly, this is not romantic, but they are to kiss Him with allegiance in order to avoid His wrath. Another example, Jacob and Esau, after years of estrangement, came together, embraced, and kissed one another. So, too, we can think of Joseph and his brothers. Once Joseph manifest himself to them as the ruler of Egypt, having been previously disguised to them. The Apostle Paul, in four different letters that he wrote to the churches, instructed the Christians to greet one another with a holy kiss. And so, when we consider the kiss to be an act of allegiance, it's utterly shocking that our text opens with Judas's kiss of betrayal. Verses 47 through 50, that kiss of betrayal. Now, as we begin to think about our text today, there are plenty of reasons that Jesus would have needed to be identified to that crowd of soldiers coming out with Judas. Recall it's the middle of the night. They did not have street lamps. They did not have high-powered flashlights. Furthermore, we must remember that we live in a day filled with pictures. You probably have 500 pictures at least on your own mobile device of yourself with selfies. Back in that day, there were not pictures. They, people did not know who G, what Jesus looked like, almost certainly. They knew his name. They knew his reputation. They knew what he did publicly. But even in the midst of these crowds, it would have been hard to get a sight of Jesus and what he looked like. And so in the middle of the night, as this group came out to capture him, it would be hard to see him and to make out his face amongst the other disciples. And so they needed some sign to identify him clearly. So, Judas had an idea. He knew how he was going to identify Jesus to the soldiers who would capture him. He decided that rather than just like pointing to him and say, hey, that's the guy, or maybe grabbing him and seizing him and say, hey, I got him, I got him in a headlock, you know, he would go up to Jesus and place a kiss on Jesus. This is actually really sick and twisted. He's turning an act of allegiance on its head, making it a sign of betrayal instead. Perhaps he's trying to show very clearly to the Jewish leaders 
that his allegiance was no longer with Jesus. That's how far he was going to go to demonstrate that he had changed teams. But perhaps just as shocking, and this is something that the patristics point out very clearly, is that Jesus willingly received this kiss of betrayal. Perhaps nothing is as upsetting to you and me as being betrayed by a loved one. It's one thing for an enemy to oppose you, but for someone who's a close loved one, Judas is one of the twelve. He and Jesus spent three years together in very close quarters. They likely knew everything about one another. And now, Jesus, knowing exactly what's going on, he predicted it. He could also see it. He saw the crowd with swords and clubs coming with Judas. He knows exactly what's going on. These thugs approaching with G Judas, ready to arrest him under the cloak of darkness. But rather than push Judas away or keeping him at arm's length and saying, Hey, I'm, I'm the guy. He allows Judas to come up to him and to kiss him. That to me is every bit as shocking as Judas turning that sign of allegiance on its head. And then Jesus calls him friend. He calls him friend. What should we make of this? Well, one thing we can certainly say is this. Jesus is submitting to the path that the Father had appointed for him. The path that the Scriptures had appointed for him. Recall the prophecy of Psalm 41. Jesus speaking through King David long in advance, hundreds of years in advance. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Recall the words of Psalm 55 again. Jesus, hundreds of years before, speaking through King David, speaking in advance, it is not an enemy who taunts me. Then I could bear it. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. Jesus did not try to evade arrest. Neither did he try to avoid being humiliated. How embarrassing that kiss must have been. Instead, he was submitting to denigration because it was the path of your salvation. He was full of love for his enemies, for Judas and for you. He was concerned not for himself, but for you. And so he welcomed Judas's approach. He welcomed that kiss of betrayal. 
He welcomed the shame that was coming upon him that you might not experience such shame for eternity. He subjected himself to that kiss of betrayal. Our first point. In verses 51 through 56, we see then two differing responses to the betrayal and to the arrest. The first response comes from one of the eleven. We can assume here that this unnamed disciple was filled with rage at the betrayal of Judas and at the unjust arrest of Jesus. You can imagine his heart pumping, the adrenaline flowing. He reaches to his sheath, draws out a sword, and goes on the attack in an effort to defend Jesus. The Gospel of John tells us that this disciple was Peter. Matthew keeps him anonymous, likely because the rest of the disciples shared Peter's mindset and probably agreed with his overall approach. Per the usual, Peter here would be representing the disciples, all of them, 11, all the 11 there, and acting as a representative of the whole group. So, why then did they think that drawing a sword and fighting was the correct response? They still failed to understand the nature of the king and the nature of the kingdom of heaven. They still believed that Christ's purposes could be advanced through the earthly sword. They believed that the humiliation of betrayal was contrary to the kingdom of heaven, in other words. They believed that Jesus should not face injustices of a nighttime arrest. So if they could cause enough commotion, perhaps Jesus could slip away, escape, regroup, and then enter into Jerusalem at a later point to become again the king of Jerusalem. Let's go for the mulligan. Let's go for round two. But Jesus explains that being humiliated and unjustly condemned was not contrary to the kingdom of heaven. If earthly strength had ever been important, he could have summoned in an instant 12 legions of angels more than 144,000 heavenly warriors would have arrived with flaming sword ready to go to battle. But the earthly sword pertains only to earthly life and earthly death. Jesus had come for something much, much greater. He had come for eternal life. And he explains here, that there was a need for Scripture to be fulfilled. And he points this out twice. Notice verse 54. How then should the Scriptures be fulfilled? Verse 56. All this has taken place, that the Scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Yes, it looked like he was losing. It looked like the kingdom of heaven was failing, but everything was going just as planned. The ancient prophecies were being fulfilled. He needed to face injustice and shame. Humiliation, not the sword, 
would establish the kingdom of heaven. Our second point, the kingdom and the sword. Now, in terms of practical application, I want us to begin here by reflecting on our own allegiance to Jesus. In Psalm 2, recall, the psalmist instructs us all to kiss the Son. That is, to be faithful to Him and to show Him our allegiance. In Judas, we see what I might call a dino. No, not an extinct dinosaur, but dino as in, a disciple in name only. He was not a disciple from the heart. He was a fraud. And when Judas began to discover that he was following an earthly loser, Judas switched teams. The truth of Jesus and the humble shape of the kingdom and the humble shape of the Christian life were too much for him. So he had no problem then changing teams, using a kiss to betray Jesus, and abandoning all professed allegiance to him. Beloved, let us learn from this negative example. Let us learn that not everyone who says to Jesus, Lord, Lord, is a true disciple. There are some who are like Judas. They perform mighty works for Jesus, they partake of the bread and of the wine, yet they depart when the Christian life becomes costly, when being associated with Jesus becomes humiliating, when Scripture demands something of them that they don't want to do. And so I ask you today, will you be loyal to Jesus when being faithful costs you something? Or maybe more, will you be loyal to Jesus when it costs you everything? When it costs you your job, your status, your creature comforts, your relationships? Will you remain loyal to Jesus? One of the old liturgies of the Christian church incorporates this story of Judas into the Lord's Supper liturgy. And it spurred the worshiper toward faithful allegiance, not Judas-like betrayal. Before consuming the bread and wine, the worshiper prays these words, I will not give you a kiss as did Judas, but like the thief, the thief on the cross, I confess to you, remember me, Lord, in your kingdom. We will pray this later during the supper. May we grow in our allegiance to Jesus this day. Our second point of application. Let us courageously bear the cross. Commenting on this text, John Calvin wrote these words. We are much more courageous and ready for fighting than for bearing the cross. 
there are plenty of people who are ready to rush into conflict, who are ready to display their earthly strength. There are even versions of Christianity that are characterized by bravado and unhealthy visions of masculinity and Christ's kingdom. But the strength and courage that Jesus displays here, it's quite different. His courage was displayed in his faithful endurance of insults, injustices, and complete humiliation. And his courage was displayed in his faithful response of love, calling Judas friend. Kingdom courage is to love your enemy and remain faithful to the Lord, even if it leads to your humiliation and your suffering. That is kingdom courage. This is the sort of courage that Jesus enjoins upon us, upon you, to courageously suffer for the kingdom and not take up the earthly sword. Consider what Jesus taught earlier in Matthew chapter 10. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be innocent as doves. You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness to them. Notice what's lacking all that. Grab your sword and fight. No, be innocent as doves. Bear witness to them. Be hated by all for my name's sake. The disciples, they had an earthly sort of courage. They drew the earthly sword and they engaged in a fight for Jesus. But they were lacking kingdom courage. When it was time to suffer humiliation and abasements, they turned and ran away. They were, as John Calvin noted, more courageous and ready for fighting than for bearing the cross. May we be otherwise, beloved, and courageously bear the cross. Third and finally, while we are called to put away the earthly sword, I want to emphasize this does not mean you are called to become a doormat for Jesus, to just passively stand by. No, not at all. You are called to action and courageous action. You are called to conquer. But this conquest is not to be performed by way of an earthly sword, but through the spiritual sword. The only sword that advances the kingdom of heaven. You, beloved, are called to bear witness out of love for your enemies. But first, I want to clarify something. This call to put away the earthly sword. There are some who have taken this text to teach pacifism. I do not believe that is at all the case. Jesus here is speaking about the kingdom of heaven. And it is with respect to the kingdom of heaven that we must put away our earthly sword. You cannot defend or advance the kingdom of heaven with it. 
It is with respect to that heavenly kingdom that the earthly sword must be put away. For the earthly sword does not spread eternal life. It either defends or takes away earthly life only. There is still place for the earthly sword. And yes, a Christian might be called to use it. For example, God has appointed the civil magistrate to bear the sword. The earthly sword, not the heavenly one. And the Old Testament clearly validates self-defense. But those uses of the earthly sword are not to be confused with the furtherance of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is not subjected to earthly warfare. If the sword is brought out, the earthly one that is, is not, not taken away or advanced through it. Indeed, oftentimes the kingdom of heaven advances when the earthly sword is turned against it. For example, in China. And so what do we see here in our text? We see in our text those who have the earthly strength and many earthly swords and clubs. That great crowd is armed, aren't they? They could kill the body, but they could not harm the soul. Earthly force was not on the side of Jesus, and his heavenly kingdom was not advancing through it. Rather, through his humiliation, Jesus was sharpening the sword of the Spirit. That earthly sword does not advance the kingdom of heaven, but the spiritual sword that Jesus was sharpening by his humiliation, that spiritual sword does advance the kingdom of heaven. This is what the apostles speak of in contrast to the earthly sword. The spiritual sword is nothing less than the word of God. Recall the apostle John in Revelation. He speaks about a two-edged sword that emerges from the mouth of Jesus. He's not speaking about a physical sword. But the word of God, the word of Christ emerging, with that Jesus will make war. We read of this in Hebrews chapter 4. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirits, of joints and of marrow. In Ephesians 6, Paul tells the believer to use this sword. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We are not called to become doormats for Jesus, but to be actively courageous by taking up the spiritual sword, the Word of God, and with that, making war. We make war with the devil. We make war with the world. We make war with our own sin. We make war with unbelief. And with that spiritual sword, we conquer, we overthrow, and we bring down the devil's domain by the power of Jesus Christ through the working of the Holy Spirit. And so, beloved... Let us courageously bear the cross, 
not merely receiving humiliation and faithfulness to Jesus, but by courageously bearing the Word of God and bearing witness to a lost and dying world. Out of love speaking to our enemies, out of love professing and proclaiming Jesus, our Savior, who was betrayed, unjustly arrested, and humbled to the point of death on a cross for the forgiveness of sinners like you and like me. And so in conclusion, beloved, you who are loved by Jesus, let us show him true allegiance, kissing him with true faithfulness from our hearts. Let us be unashamed of his humiliation and of his cross. But instead, may we rejoice in his sufferings, knowing that in his lowliness we find not, we, uh, we find not spiritual defeats, but spiritual victory. We find in his humiliation life itself. May we be filled by the Spirit with all courage to bear the cross to bear the shame of belonging to Jesus and of following His Word, yet being active in our courage to take up the Word, being innocent as doves, and bearing witness to those who would ask us for an answer for the hope that lies within us. Beloved, by the Spirit's work, we will do so. In our union with Christ, we will do so. And so let us rejoice and take heart today. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.